Let's go look to our Lord now in prayer. And Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for last night. Thank you for the services this morning. Tremendous comings and goings of relatives and family and friends. In the midst of these comings and goings, there's a constant, not a variable, a constant. It's Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you, Father, for who he is and what he has done. Coming into this world via Bethlehem, to go to the cross via Jerusalem, to die for our sins. We know that wise people seek to make connections, and I thank you for a congregation that does so, and does not isolate Bethlehem from Jerusalem, the incarnation from the atonement, but threads this, connects this. And in the process, Father, we are able to see the drama of redemption unfolding in front of our very eyes as developed in your word. So, Father, in these minutes to come, it's our prayer on this wonderful Christmas day that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Come here, Father, again to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you're like our extended family, but we always looked forward to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and the three-part The Hobbit. There is a very powerful statement in the last paragraph of The Hobbit that I think relates very well to the passage we're looking at this morning. It's a conversation, a dialogue between Bilbo and Gandalf. Where Bilbo says, well, then the prophecies of the old songs have turned out to be true, after a fashion. And Gandalf responds, but of course, and why should not they prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit? Well, you're a fine, very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you. But you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. Thank goodness, said Bilbo, laughing. Now, there's a lot of rich insight into that dialogue. What God is doing in Matthew chapter 2 is bringing together participants in the fulfillment of a prophecy. Prophecies. Prophecies from Micah chapter 5, beginning with verse 2. Prophecies, interestingly enough, from the book of Isaiah as well, that thread not only past to present, but present to future. And what I want to do this morning with you is to draw three significant aspects of the fulfillment of prophecies that we find here in these verses that I think have direct bearing on the way in which we go about worshiping our Lord, direct bearing upon the way in which we go about living for our Lord. 
And the first is found in verse 1 and again in verse 2. You want to connect things together, of course. We're going to put it like this. Number one, that in the fulfillment of God's promises, God's promises, I first want you to note with me the global impact of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 and verse 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, now notice how specific we get, of Judea, bear in mind that there was more than one Bethlehem when Micah penned his prophecies eight centuries prior. Astounding how God is sovereignly superintending the events over all of time, promises and fulfillments. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, these are Gentiles making their way into the Jewish setting of Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Imagine then, you've got Gentiles posing a question to Jews regarding who their and where their king is. Have you pondered the significance of the global impact? No. They will go on to say this. We have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, what interests me, there's a number of things here, is first of all, the magi and these wise men. Because it could very well be, and it's certainly my opinion of, that these magi, these wise men, come from the land of Babylon. And coming from the land of Babylon, modern-day Iraq region, of course, there's an interesting statement made in Daniel chapter 2 and in verse 27, where you will find, and I will find these words, where Daniel, in interaction with the king, says, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers, can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these, and he unfolds for them. Have you seized the thought process that what is described in that situation, in that story, were wise men found in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And these wise men, these magi, couldn't deliver the goods when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that is so troubling to him with regard to what's going on. How does this relate to his own personal experience? And have you pondered how God sovereignly positioned a Daniel to have such high degree of influence politically with this man who at that point did not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and how God sovereignly positions people who love Jesus politically next to those who may not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to so influence decisions and policies within a land. Well, now, have you connected Daniel and Magi 
of the book of Daniel to what you are now reading here in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Where now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which means literally house of bread, and consider when Jesus would break bread and continue to feed multitudes. Consider this, then, that this is the days of Herod the king, and behold, wise men, the magi from the east, which I take to be Babylon, modern-day Iraq, have come to Jerusalem, Gentiles making their way with good news to Jerusalem, of all things. There's your sovereign God saying, where is he, in the form of a question, who has been born king of the Jews? You would have thought that somebody within the setting of Palestine would have been asking that question. But isn't it interesting that it goes on to say, for we have saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It doesn't say that we, we heard angels and have come to worship him. No, God utilized angels with regard to Jewish shepherds, and God utilized a star with regard to these astrologers or astronomers that all kind of emerged in that day and age, you see. In other words, God sovereignly chooses which vehicle is best to be able to communicate who he is and what he intends to do for his glory. There is the wisdom, you see, of your God. He knows the cultures, he knows the nations, and he knows what is the best means by which to communicate. And so he uses a star with regard to Babylonian magi, and he uses shepherds with regard to the uh, angels with regard to shepherds outside of Bethlehem. Fascinating. And have you furthermore considered the fact that there was David, Tending sheep. Where? Outside of Bethlehem. When he would be called in and anointed by Samuel to become king. God used shepherds. Now God is using a magi, and he used the positioning of Israelites of a prior era to have such a high level of influence that the stage is being set for this kind of global impact to occur. The star. Star of wonder. Star of light, star with royal and beauty bright. Westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. There is a brilliant book. I was talking with the pastors prior to first service this morning. You might want to get it early Christmas gift for next year, you see. The Great Christ Comet by Colin Nicol. He was formerly a professor at Gordon Conwell, and pulls together astronomy and theology. And he poses some thoughts with regard to the historical plausibility of the Matthew 2 account. And writes, for one thing, we know from Josephus that Herod the Great in his final years was extraordinarily cruel and capable of the most terrible atrocities. Therefore, the massacre of the innocents recorded by Matthew in this passage fits perfectly into the framework of the historical period. Then he adds, second, when the Magi did in undertaking a long journey westward to greet a king is not implausible, but as we shall see, is very similar to what other Magi did about seven decades later in the time of Nero. 
there's the value of knowing history. Third, most of all Jews and Christians despised astrologers and would not normally have been inclined to trust their testimony. Therefore, you would not have expected a Jewish writer such as Matthew fabricating a nativity narrative to choose astrologers as among the first to welcome the newborn Messiah into the world. Not so. A fabricator would most likely have stayed away from any elements that would have seemed theologically suspect and risked offending the intended readership. Isn't that rich? Isn't that good? But then you want to connect that with um, some ideas with regard to the idea of the star. Now, understandably, in a few locations, stars more celebrate than in the town of Bethlehem in the West Bank. And their pilgrims can stay at the Bethlehem Star Hotel, do some shopping when you're prone to at the annual Christmas market on Star Street, check out the coffee at Stars and Bucks Cafe, And visit the manger square where images of the Bethlehem star abound. Now, if you're not prone to head towards Israel, there's Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, known as Christmas City, USA, what relishes in this association of its name. And so the most prominent manifestations of this, spectacular 90-foot-high, 8 raid star illuminated by 250 bulbs on South Mountain that stunningly beams out over the city and is, vis- is visible 20 miles away. Now, if that doesn't do you good, well, in your next pilgrimage to Poland, check out their Christmas feasts. For to them, Christmas is known around the nation as Little Star. Little Star. And so their festivities begin around sunset on Christmas Eve when the first star is spotted and it's called the Star of Bethlehem. And then they enjoy a star supper, after which a heavenly star cookie is served. Consider this one, where the people of Mexico who remember the Bethlehem star when they create, and then they smash a vibrantly colored seven-pointed Christmas piñata. I bet you Herod would have loved to have done that. And when they decorate their houses, with poinsettias. Now, what God has done is indelibly impress upon the heart and the mind of the people the star of David and how it relates to the son of David who is found in Bethlehem while David himself was out in the fields of Bethlehem tending to sheep. And you and I know Jesus as the good shepherd. Back during World War II, a little boy and his father were driving home on Christmas Eve, and they drove past row upon row of houses with Christmas trees and decorations in the windows. But in many of the windows, the little boy noticed a star So he asked his father, Daddy, why do some of the people have a star in the window? As Daddy said, that the star meant that the family had a son in the war. And as they passed the last house, suddenly the little boy caught sight of the evening star in the sky. 
look, Daddy, God must have a son in the war, too. He's got a star in his window. God sent his son into war. And he laid down his life so that we might live. Connect Bethlehem to Calvary. But I want you to bear in mind here that God is doing something global, but simultaneously doing something local. He's got magi coming from what I believe to be Babylon, and he's got people that are becoming increasingly aware in Bethlehem. God multitasks, you see. And so global and regional are happening simultaneously. That is your sovereign God. So in the fulfillment of God's promises, and we've already tied the idea here of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and so on, which appears in this section, you first of all note with me the global impact of Jesus Christ, and everything which is local is tied to that which is global, and everything which is global is connected to all the various locals. It all fits together here, and you are sovereign God is busy at work. But now, there's a second aspect of this fulfillment of God's promises that unfolds. It's found in verse 3 through 8. I want you to note, second of all, the different responses to Jesus Christ. We noted the global impact of Jesus Christ in 1 through 2. Note with me the different responses to Jesus Christ in 3 through 8. Now, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Literally from the original language, he was all shook up. Long before Elvis Presley, there was Herod, you see. And people are all shook up. And all Jerusalem with him, and they're shaken because Herod's shaken. And you don't want a Herod to be shaken because when Herod is shaken, everybody's going to be shaken because this man was emotionally unstable, known for putting to death family members when he felt threatened with regard to his own rule. So imagine how he feels now when he's beginning to learn the story of this one born in Bethlehem, born king of the Jews. And magi from the east have come all this way to inform him of this. The very fact that they would come this distance means something is amiss in his mindset. But what's going on? Well, in verse 4, you and I are told here that he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Well, if the Magi are inquiring, so is he. And so now, likewise, he inquires. He wants to know where the Christ was to be born. They know exactly, these biblical theologians, these scribes, what passage references refers to this even though it was penned eight centuries prior to Jesus entering via Bethlehem to go through Jerusalem to die on Calvary, they've got it. They know it. In Bethlehem of Judea, and then they were able to add these words, for so it is written by the prophet. I never underestimate to you the so it is written of the Bible. That is why we work 
verse by verse. And now, reaching in to the prophecies of old, oh, Gandalf and Bilbo would love this. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will mark this. Shepherd my people Israel. Now, you are thinking, you have noted the genealogy that Matthew himself has penned, where in verse 1 of chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then your mind goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, where Samuel is looking to anoint one to be king of the Jews. And where will he find David? Out in the fields of Bethlehem doing what? Shepherding sheep. And that shepherd will become king. You tie that together then with the end of verse 6, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And you can imagine both Jew and Gentile at this point are leaning forward, processing the rich significance of how all of this seems to simply fit together. Jesus. Royalty. Born in Bethlehem. Now, the history majors in all three services, and and we've got history teachers in all the services, know the story of Peter the Great, who was Tsar of Russia, and he wanted to build a navy. And the Russian people were not a maritime people, as you and I know. So as the result of the wars, he got a seaport for Russia on the Baltic Sea. And then he said, I'm going to build a navy. But his people simply knew nothing about ships. So what did he do? Listen to this. He laid aside his royal robes and crown, invested his wife Catherine with the regent's authority over the Russian dominion, He dressed as a common workman and made his way to Holland and England. He veiled his identity. He worked as an apprentice to a ship's carpenter. He learned how to build ships. And then he went back to Russia, laid aside his workman's garb, arrayed himself once more in his royal robe and equipped the people of that land to do what needed to be done. When you and I ponder the significance of that historical event, and we tie it as an illustration then to what we're reading in Matthew chapter 2, then we can nod our heads with what Paul himself had written. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not consider count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you done that? Well, two natures in one person. God breaking into time. Herod all shook up. So in verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And notice how the evil one mingles then the idea of deception with some aspects of worship so that confusion develops. He wants to disrupt the forward movement. So now you've got wise men, magi from the east. You've got scribes here who know the scriptures. You've got Herod here who's all shook up If you and I were to summarize what we've just covered in verse 3 down through verse 8, and if we were to find a way to be able, in fact, to be able to learn something that would strategically impact the people that we minister to day in, day out, what would those summary points be? Well, let's start with what will appear on the screen. The wise men. For you see, some like wise men, are seekers and inquisitive about Christ. And whether it be your office gatherings in the coming days or extended family members, in the comings and goings of people, you're going to be encountering those who've got questions and are willing to go the extra mile, in fact, and are courageous and bold enough to grapple with verbally, out loud, what is the meaning, what is the purpose of life, and how does this celebration of Christmas fit in to the overall cosmic purposes that I grapple with? There are those who are inquisitive. Maybe they don't know all there is to know about Jesus to the degree that you do, but they've got questions. The Bible is God's answers. And when you become a student of God's word and you deal with the cosmic issues of this world in a very personal way and you bring a sense of purpose and meaning to their own desperate soul search, the result is we've got people who are open to the possibilities of putting faith and trust like the Magi in Jesus Christ. They're willing to go the extra mile. But there's a second group of people that you are going to be trafficking with in the coming days. Because secondly, there are some like the scribes. Oh, they're religious, yet indifferent to Christ. Those scribes knew what passage to turn to. They knew where Bethlehem could be found. So close scripturally, so close geographically, yet they do not go to Bethlehem to seek Jesus. 
They are religiously informed, biblically aware, but they are not saved. They are what you and I might describe as religious unbelievers. I would have expected the Magi to be secular unbelievers, but they are seeking Jesus. Here are people steeped in religious understanding, knowledgeable in the scriptures, that they would even be able to point to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and so forth, and they're not willing to go the extra mile. So close, so far, while the Magi are so far, but so close. And both groupings are moving in front of you in the midst of the comings and goings in your workplace, your studies, your school, and on and on and on. So close, but so far. So far, but so close. Don't assume if one is religious that one is saved. Don't assume if one is knowledgeable in scriptures that that person is saved. You might have a scribe on your hands. Now, how will you minister to a wise man and how you will minister to a scribe will be different. Same truth, but you're going to have to use different approaches. Know who's more of a secularist in their upbringing and background. Now, who is more of a religionist in their upbringing, their background? But then there's a third group. Because thirdly, there are some like Herod. They're threatened. Hostile to Christ. Why? King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be, is a song that is often sung. But kingship means lordship, and it typically means that I'm going to have to change. I can't be king of my life. There is no dual reign here. Either he is king or I am king. But there is no co-regency when it comes to matters of the heart. And the challenge is when some becomes increasingly troubled at this time of year, Hostile, in fact, at this time of year, it's because you're really dealing with a lordship, kingship matter that Jesus Christ wants complete reign over that life. And that individual might be saying, but if I give Jesus complete reign of my life, I'm going to have to give up doing what I do, living the way I live. And I'm not sure I want to do that. I don't want to step away from my throne. Generally speaking, these are the three groups that are going to be trafficking with you in the days, the weeks, the months to come, who not only traffic outside this building, but also can traffic inside this building. And we've got to find various ways of communicating eternal truths in a manner that truly speaks to the heart of that person and treat each with respect and dignity, but at the same time communicate truth with love, you see. Now, there's your second aspect, that in the fulfillment of God's promises, you note here not only the global impact of Jesus Christ in 1 and 2, 
but the different responses to Jesus Christ in 3 through 8. Well, there's a third aspect. It's found in verse 9 through 12. That in the fulfillment of God's promises, note thirdly then, the genuine worship of Jesus Christ. This is not counterfeit like Herod's. This is not deceptive. This is authentic. This is genuine. After listening to the king, now, which king are they going to be loyal to? The same question's got to be asked of today. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. God is a way of sovereignly, continuously guiding people to Jesus. Wise men, scribes, and Herods have all got to recognize this very fact. The star does not stop short of the mark. The star gives evidential reality to the fact that this is the fulfillment of the promise of old, of Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and following. So what do you do when this has been fully revealed, as you and I have had through God's word? Well, when they saw the star, they rejoiced, and they rejoiced exceedingly. How? Over and over and again in Scripture, you find the richness of the word joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength, you see. Not the happiness of life. The joy of the Lord is your strength, even when you feel so weakened by your external circumstances. So in verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. Look what comes next. They fell down and worshipped him. They did not fall down at the feet of Herod. They fall down at the feet of Christ. What's the difference between Jesus, the king, and Herod, the king? Jesus gave life. Herod took life. Jesus was born a king. Herod was made a king. Jesus' kingship is eternal. Herod's kingship was temporal. Never try to make the eternal temporal. Never try to make the temporal eternal. Maintain the distinctions while making the connections. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, even though he's the babe and Herod seems all grown up. When reality, Jesus lived long before Herod did. So what do they do? Opening their treasures, 
they offered him gifts. The great Christmas story of gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And as we noted in your insert in the bulletin, there is a prophecy that Gandalf and Bilbo would nod at their heads and say, I like that. Because in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, Isaiah, like Micah, eight centuries prior to Jesus entering into Bethlehem, penned these words, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then at the end of verse 5 of that 60th chapter of Isaiah, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring what? Gold and frankincense, and now the gospel itself. And shall bring good news to the praises of the Lord. And what the Magi were in Matthew 2 were a major installment that will lead to that ultimate day still to come when from the north and the south and the east and the west people will bring their gifts to the one who comes not merely the first time but the second time to worship the one who died for your sins and mine. No wonder God would sovereignly have Pilate put over Jesus' head on that cross the phrase, King of the Jews. And now you are connecting Magi to Pilate and on and on it goes. So what do you do with this? Well, God is not done yet. There's still a verse 12. And being warned in a dream, right next to that, Daniel chapter 2, because God utilized in the land of Babylon combination of the astrology aspects of the false religions with dreams and then sovereignly superintended a forward movement. These people understood the value of the dream from the land of modern-day Iraq. And now God speaks to them, not again with shepherds, because shepherds are angels, because shepherds would value angels, but the wise men, you talk stars, you talk dreams, you're talking their language being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. Only Howard Hendricks could put it like this. As a boy, I loved to wander over to a nearby park and watch the older men play checkers. One day, one of them invited me to play, and at first it looked easy. I captured one and then another of his checkers. But then suddenly he took one checker and hopped and skipped right across the board to the border and yelled, King me! 
And with that king, he proceeded to wipe me off the board. But then Hendricks has this incredible insight. That day, I learned a lot about long-range vision. No one minds losing a few checkers if he or she is headed for the king's territory. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, which should be the story of our lives. Let's stand together. So, Father, in your sovereign purposes, you use angels to minister to shepherds. You use stars and dreams to minister to magi. But no matter which means, the truth remains. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, is King of kings and Lord of lords. And for this, Father, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas.